0: Ruth, um, we looked last week as we began, uh, and the the interesting story that is Ruth, it's a beautifully told story, and we gave a lot of explanation last week to stop as we simply walked verse by verse and section by section through the first chapter. This this morning, we're going to read the whole text at the beginning and and give you some overarching look at it this time instead of working through it as uh, systematically as we did last week. But if you remember in the story of Ruth, that it is a story of, of Naomi, really about a woman who loses everything. um, And life is as bad as it possibly can get. And Ruth is a story about how God redeems her. And last week we saw how God provides for her through a woman named Ruth, one who would come alongside her and give up her life and commit her life to Naomi. And this week we continue that story. And remember there's a progression here. This is going to be a little bit different. There won't be as much We won't hear the full implications of Ruth until we get to the end of it, but we'll try to glean some gospel applications here and there, but primarily we're looking at the story and some things that we can learn week by week and building the tension of of this narrative as we move through it. So read along with me as I read out loud, Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, of the clan of Elimelech. If you remember, Elimelech is Naomi's husband. So there's a cue, a, a cue here, a, a clue, whose name was Boaz. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Who was of the clan of Elimelech? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn." Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done I, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat, it, beat out what it had glean, what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that what she had gleaned, and she also Brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Speaking about her lunch, and after mother and her mother-in-law said to her, "Where did you glean today? And where have you worked?" Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, "The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz." And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead." Naomi also said to her, That man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you should go, you go out with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, leaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And since the reading of God's words, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, um, this, this chapter shows, um, last week we showed the un- unbelievable alteration that five verses can do in your life. Five, five verses, it was ten years a death of a husband, two sons, zero grandchildren for Naomi. Life goes from fullness to famine in her mind. And but what we see here today in this chapter in one chapter and not in 10 years though, but in one singular day, Naomi goes through what we could only call a mini resurrection. She goes from a woman who is depressed and at the end of chapter 1 who has described herself as bitter and at the end of chapter 2 she is praising the Lord and is a woman who is delighting and full of joy and has provision and fullness again. She, how does she come alive? That's what happens in chapter 2. Naomi, the story is ultimately still about Naomi. She is not the primary actor and mover in chapter 2, but it is her who comes alive. It is her who experiences the mini-resurrection. And the story, but with the story of Ruth, the the shape of the story of Ruth begins with a downward spiral that now, beginning with chapter 2, we see an upward trajectory that begins to take place that will last for the rest of the book and while that, this type of story, this shape of a story that goes down and then back up may not sound that radical to you, but this is the story of the Bible. And there are countless smaller stories that take in the Bible that take this same direction, down into death and back up into eternal life. And, because, and this is radical because this is different than the stories that the world tells the world tells, and we actually see this in most cultures of the world, going back from um, Cherokee Indians of the North, in the North America to the Taoists in China, that they believe that life is circular. That the stories that they tell are circular. That they look out on the horizon of life and they see life as being a circle to it. Every day was a time circle. The world traveled in a circle, beginning with morning and ending with night. The moon traced a circle of light. Everything from, went from birth to death. It was a circle. You may have heard of a song that goes something like this. This circle is actually the symbol for paganism. Did you know that? But it isn't actually a happy circle, no matter how many sweet songs we sing about it. The Greeks believed that we are caught in a vicious cycle in this world. In fact, any serious playwright in the ancient uh, Greek system, when they would write plays, that they would almost always end in tragedy. Why? Why? Because even in the best of time, they believed that suffering was just around the corner. And therefore, you either chose Stoicism or you chose Epicureanism. You either chose, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, or we all must just prepare to die and be Stoic about it. It haunted every celebration. And this view of life was this, that even in times of safety, I know in times of peace and prosperity, these things are not permanent. That peace will be followed by war, prosperity will be followed by poverty that happiness will be followed by by suffering and that life will be followed by inevitably death in our modern world what we have tried to do is actually take this and we have tried to romanticize it and dress it up and make it look pretty and take it on beyond the the nihilistic approach that it actually is we talk about life being a journey and not about the destination why because we believe that life is a circle. It is pointless. We're going nowhere. We're simply going on a circle around this sphere and we're gonna end in death. This is actually a nihilistic view of the world. And yet we see to, we try to romanticize it. That's what Disney World is trying to do in The Lion King when they write a, a sweet song, supposedly, about the circle of life. But paganism and this worldview is not optimistic, these kind of stories. What good does it do in the circle of life to think that my, that my body, when I decay and die, will become word food and vegetation for flowers? That doesn't ha- make me very happy today. That doesn't do anything for me to know that, that I'll be part of some circle of life in the world where a flower or a bug or an animal will feed on my flesh. That, that's gross to me. And what about the memory of my life? That there's some sort of, that I, I go on in the, the memory of those who follow me. The reality is my great-great-grandchildren won't remember my name. I'm here today, and I am gone tomorrow. The circle of life, in order to see how, how cynical, how, how, how lifeless it really is, if we could pull ourselves down into our daily life and see, if we saw a daily life as a circle, here's how it goes. This is how many of you think of life. That our daily life is lived like this. We drag ourselves out of bed in the morning... We go to work, we watch the clock until quitting time, we rush home either to the loneliness of an empty house or to the whining of children, we eat our dinner, we watch our TV, and then we collapse in bed, all to do it over again tomorrow. That's the real circle of life. That's the reality, and we do that until we die. Now, if you actually think of life in that way, and we expose the circle of life in the reality of what it is, that is actually quite depressing, isn't it? The a reality is this, is if you view, view life and you view, view the story of your life as a circle, that will crush you. That will crush you. So enjoy akuna Matata the next time you hear it. But that is a lie, a lie to try to, to, to help you soothe your soul on the way to death and to a life of cynicism. But that is not the story of Ruth, and that is not the story of the gospel. The story of the Ruth is a gospel story, and therefore, instead of being a circle... The story of Ruth is, I'm going to describe it this way, is a J-curve. It is a J-curve. You go down into death, and you go back up. That is the shape of the story, and that is the shape of anyone who is connected to Christ Jesus. So this morning, what I want to look at is how Naomi's story is a J-curve. And how we, were, particularly this morning, get to look at how she rises. How, what happens in this chapter to take this woman from the bottom part of the J to moving upwards? in resurrection. Three ways in which I want to see this morning in this chapter, in chapter two, and with reasons why her story moves from death into resurrection. The first is this, Naomi begins to experience resurrection because of the storyteller, because of the storyteller. Listen, it is so subtle in the text. But we see it begins like this. Naomi and Ruth are probably in a place of depression. They're in a place of impoverishment. They're barely getting by, perhaps begging for food. And in verse three, what we see is that Ruth says, "I'm," or she says in verse one and two, "I'm going to go glean in the fields. I'm going to go try to take advantage of a of the Israelite law that says that you're to, to not glean your fields so cleanly that the, the poor people might not be able to come in and gather just a few a few pieces of wheat to have food for the day." But in verse 3, it says this So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to part of the field belonging to Boaz. Listen, you have to begin to hear the words of the speaker here. And actually, and again, last week I said that this story is beautiful in the Hebrew in particular, and it's hard to hear sometimes in English, but the Hebrew phrase there for just happened to come to the part of the field, is she actually mentions it twice there. And a more precise translation would be, as luck would have it. As luck would have it, she chanced upon the field that belongs to Boaz. Oh, she just so happened to come to Boaz's The writer intends to make a striking understatement here, almost a sarcastic point, that the unseen God is guiding Ruth from the moment she walks out of the house in order to bring resurrection into her life and to Naomi's life. That God is providentially caring and working things out. The God who wrote the story that involves her going down and going into death, is now the God who's going to write the part of the story that involves her resurrection, and that it's in his hands all the little decisions that will lead to that. Do you understand? Do you see this in your own life? That even when things are maybe in the season of death, when you're at the bottom of the J-curve of your story of life, that God just so happens, perhaps, to bring you into Boaz's fields. Sometimes God's just happens seem to happen over and over again. Again, let me give you an illustration of this to see if I can draw this out even more clearly. There was a tavern keeper's wife in Nottingham, England in the 18th uh, century who was, who was dying and, and, and a certain evangelist was asked to, um, to go visit her. Uh, a friend of theirs didn't, you know, she was a tavern keeper's wife, so, I mean, how moral can these people be? And so the evangelist is supposed to go and, and, and see if he can share the gospel with this woman and lead her to Christ as her savior But when he got to her, he found that she was already a joyous Christian who who rejoiced in Christ Jesus being her Savior. And he said to her, how was it that you came to know the Lord? And she gave him a piece of newspaper and said, from that. And he looked at this little scrap of newspaper and he found on it an excerpt from a Charles Spurgeon sermon. And he was thinking about this later on, and he fa- actually found out how in the world she, she got this newspaper, and she said that the newspaper was actually wrapping around a, a, a gift that someone had sent her from Australia. And the evangelist was thinking about this later on, and he was realizing what was happening here, is that Charles Spurgeon, who preached in, the, in London, it just so happened that his sermon was printed in an English newspaper, And it just so happened that that English newspaper was syndicated in the United States so that that newspaper in the United States ran his sermon and the text of his sermon. And it just so happened that that newspaper from America somehow found its way to Australia. And it just so happened that someone used that newspaper to wrap a gift to send from Australia to Nottingham, England, It just so happened that she took that wrapping paper and decided to read it, and it just so happened that her soul was saved for eternal life. God works, and His stories function within the just-so-happens of life. That God is providentially in control. Naomi's story rises upward because of God's unseen hand here. He is not mentioned. He's not mentioned. And yet God is working and moving to take her from a story of death into a story of resurrection. The awareness of a master storyteller weaving his way and weaving a beautiful story in my life should give us pause. That your God is a story writing genius, a savant, an artist who is weaving into your life hidden blessings and patterns. When even when you feel like you're at the bottom of the J curve of the story of life. That he is bringing his just so happens to bear to bring resurrection the second thing I want you to see, how God moves Naomi from a place of death to a place of resurrection, is because, and I'm sorry I'm going to use this term, perhaps after the Sunday I'll never use this term again in my life, because of love warriors. Don't, don't throw things at me. I know that sounds like, like love warriors, like some sort of bad, like D-level, D like sci-fi movie, love warriors, but that is exactly what happens in Naomi's life. Naomi experiences resurrection because the God who works providentially most often moves through his people to bring resurrection to the lives of others. The story of Ruth and Boaz that we are going to begin to see this morning is most often described and talked about. People come to Ruth and Boaz to this story in order to talk about how you date. That and they look at this is this great romance in the scriptures. And certainly there is, a, there is some romance, and we're going to see it next week. Although it's, there is no one, if you look at Ruth chapter 3, don't look ahead. If you look at Ruth chapter 3, though, no one would want your daughters to date like that. But what I want you to see here is this is not ultimately a story about lovebirds. This is a story about love warriors. Let me look at both the characters. First, I want you to see that Ruth is a love warrior. Or I'm going to, let me put it this way. Ruth, as a woman, is a warrior. Azair. Azair is the first word to describe the role of women in this world. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, God says that women are Azairs. They are helpers is what that word means. Now, what do I mean by this? Let me see if I can illustrate this from American history just a bit. At the Ohio Women's Civil Rights Convention in 1851, there was a strong, tall, powerfully built woman named Sojourner Truth who stood up and said this. And here's the words that she said. She said, look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and I have planted and gathered into barns and no man could best me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as any man when I could get it and I could bear the lash from slavery as well. She was an African-American who had escaped from slavery. And ain't I a woman I have borne 13 children and seen most of them sold off to slavery and when I cried out with my mother's grief none but Jesus heard me and ain't I a woman Sojourner Truth spent her life fighting for women and for the enslaved peoples of the American South for her being a woman including sweating in the fields alongside men For her, it meant exerting physical strength to plow and plant and harvest. It meant fighting fierce battles and terrible battles for her children and taking up unpopular causes that might get her killed. It meant she unflinchingly entered into every battle that Jesus gave her, and she did so with all the, what, feminine strength she could muster. Sojourner Truth is an example of a warrior Azir, and that is what Ruth is as well. Ruth is a warrior, Azer. Let me go into this, the meaning of this word Azer just a bit and it's why it connects so well with warrior. Azer is a powerful Hebrew military word that is most often used to describe God as Israel's helper. God employs the term only twice to refer to women, but it is, it is in poignant and critical moments. Defining the role of women in this world, the Lord said this in Genesis chapter two, verse eighteen, and then again in verse twenty. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper or an azair suitable for him. The word azair occurs twenty-one times in the scriptures: two about women, sixteen about God and His help for His people, and three about military powers. But if we expand our look at this word and look at azair in its verb form, which is not azair but azair. Azir, which means to rescue and save, is used 80 times in the scriptures. And on almost every single one of those times, it is used to indicate military assistance. And this is the word that describes the role of women in the world. As powerful, as strong, as those who come to help and to save and to rescue like God does. Checking the math. 19 of the 21 times and nearly 100% of the verb form times, there is an overwhelming military connection to this call of who women are called to be. And yet for some strange women reason, when we talk about women, the only things that we bring up are babies, submission, and cleaning the house. Now what I'm telling you this morning is that it absolutely probably includes those things. But it is so much more than that. The Bible's consistent use of "Azair" as a military concept and context should lead us to the conclusion that God created women to be warriors, not separate from men, but alongside of men, and advancing God's kingdom through the world. God's first kingdom call to men was to have dominion and dynasty, to be fruitful and multiply. Guess what, men? We can't do that without women. And God put it within the created order. Every woman is an Azer from birth to death. Women are called to be God's warriors for his purposes in this world, to use their particular means of strength and particular means of power. And the stories and examples of women that we have in the Bible use this all the time. Let me go to the most classic example of women, the place that we most often go to talk about women Proverbs chapter 31. And I want you to see this, that this military language, this idea of strength is used extensively in Proverbs chapter 31. Verse 10, and when the very first verse, in talking about the the wife that the man should pursue, the woman that a man should pursue is this. It says that, that the excellent wife, who can find? The word excellent there in the Hebrew is hayil. The word hayil, we translate it as excellent, but more literally it means this, strength, power, army, competency, and brave. So look for a wife, a woman who is brave and who is competent, and who is strong and who is powerful. Verse 29, that same word is used when it talks about this woman, this great descriptive, this, 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 this uber woman at the end of verse 29. This woman who exceeds all her women, it says that she is excellent. And again, it is the word high yield is referring to her strength, power, competency, bravery. Verse 15, it uses this phrase about how the, the wife will get up before the rest of her family and goes and wins food for her family and provides food for them. That word for food actually in the Hebrew means pray. That is the, 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 the illustration that the Proverbs writer is using is that she is like a lioness. Because in the lion tribe, who hunts? It ain't the men, they're sleeping. It is the women, it is the female lions. The imagery is she is searching out food for her family and is the one who provides. Verse 17, we see this example as well of of Proverbs 31. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. So, yes, Ruth is a warrior. Not despite her femininity, but because of it. And her fight, what I want you to see here, is a Hesed fight. It is a love fight, a fight to communicate and provide love for Naomi. She has practically, for all particular purposes here, become the head of a household. Ruth's warrior love is seen in a number of ways. I'm going to be very brief on this. You can just see it throughout the text. But first we see in her hard work, right? This is one of the descriptions of the Proverbs 31 woman. In all of her femininity, she is one who works hard. Widows like Ruth and Naomi, were, what we see here, they were permitted to follow the reapers. Now understand how this would work. First the men come to the field and they, with a sickle, they cut down the wheat shafts, right? And then there would be the, the, the female workers who worked, uh, the servants who would come in and they would gather those, those shafts into bundles and wrap them up. And, but what they were to do is if they weren't supposed to go over the field twice, they were after, after the men cut them down and the women came back and gathered them and then the men would come back and they would remove those shafts and take them to the threshing floor, they were not to go back over the field again. Instead, they were to use, leave the scraps for the impoverished people. And they also actually also supposed to, you've heard of crop circles, they were supposed to actually to glean their fields and harvest their fields in circles and leave the corners of them so that there would actually be large chunks of, of, of stalks on the edges for the impoverished people. It was an Old Testament version of welfare and food stamps, and yet you had to work for your food. And in this we actually see greater beauty than our welfare system because they actually gave dignity it didn't hurt people. It actually gave them a task to do. It brought dignity where they could still fight for their food and go and work hard for it. But what I want you to see here is that Ruth comes out and she's a woman that she's going to work from morning until night, before the crack of dawn until the sun goes down. And we actually, the foreman, when Boaz enters the field and he says, Who is that woman over there gleaning with the reapers? She, he says, She's been here all morning and has not stopped. She's working harder than everybody. When Boaz shows up, this is a woman who he sees immediately. In her love, she works hard. You need to understand this, that love is not just a romantic feeling. Ruth has committed herself covenantally to Naomi in the first chapter, and we see it's not just simply the fact that she moves to Israel with her, but then she's going to provide for her, and she's going to do so through hard work. To love well means hard work. It means you get up daily and you clean diapers and you wash the dishes. And this is not for women, this is for men as well. That we labor hard to communicate love, to provide. So then we also see she, she takes risks. You can see the, the tone of risks that she's taking throughout the text. Naomi wants her to stay in Boaz's field because what's she say? Because you might be assaulted in other fields. Boaz tells his young men, they leave her not to touch her. He, the concern here is essentially that she's going to be molested and assaulted and perhaps even raped and as Ruth ventures out she doesn't know which field to go to whether anyone will welcome her and what and the risks that she faces everything is unknown she is physically and she is sexually vulnerable in a world remember this is the time of judges if you go read judges go see how vulnerable women are In a place without a rule of law, without righteousness ruling. Without money, she is financially destitute. Without a friend, she is lonely. Without a country, she is a Moabite, remember? This is the lowest of the low. Vulnerability, what I want you to see here, is the cost of Hesed love. The Hesed love will draw you into places where you will take risks. You'll take financial risks. You'll take physical risks. You'll take emotional risks. I don't have the time this morning to dive into all these and illustrate them. Too bad community groups haven't already started. You could talk about these things yourself and what they actually might look like. What does vulnerability look like for you to love well? Love puts us in all kinds of situations. It puts us in places where we're not sure what to do, but all we know what to do is to risk that we don't get shut down, we don't retreat from opportunities, but we say we're going to continue to step forward in the opportunities to love and love in practical ways. Third, I want you to see her boldness. Ruth asks, interesting enough, for more. She asks of Boaz for more than the law commands. You know, back then, you know, I gave the illustration, I gave the description of how it worked, right? The, st- the guys come out and cut, then the women come in and, st- and create the stalks, the, 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 the groups of stalks, and then they take them off the field and they take them to the threshing floor. And then, you, after the field had been completely gleaned, then the impoverished people could come in. You see what Ruth asked for? She says, I want to come in and I want to reap with your reapers. In other words, I want to glean. I'm asking if you might let me glean while there's still tons of stalks on the ground. I want to come in and, and, while they're bundling them up, come in and grab while there's charged, I can grab in chunks, not just a little stalk here and there, but in chunks of wheat. I want you to see her boldness here. She is a single Moabite widow, and she does something. She approaches a rich, wealthy male, and she says... She goes beyond and exceeds beyond the law. And actually in this, what she's doing is she's pushing Boaz to move beyond simply the letter of the law and to move into the spirit of the law that, hey, I desperately need provision. And she is bold in it. She takes risks and she is bold in order to actually get the food that she and Naomi need. And she doesn't want to simply bring Naomi a few scraps. She wants to bring her food, a full loaf to eat so this is the picture I want you to see that Ruth is bending down and she's collecting individual stalks and chunks of stalks all day in the hot sun. She is unthanked. She is unprotected. She is unknown. But this is what Hesed looks like. It's in the daily grind. It's in the fact that as a father or a husband and as a, or as, as a mother who would rather be at home but says, you know what? My family needs me to go work and I will do that. Or it may involve the homeschool mom who says, I am sick of this. I am done with taking care of these children. I am tired of giving them an education in this way. And she gives up. No, no. Hessed life is getting up daily and day out, making bold requests, working and laboring hard. This involves going to a job that you don't like, that may be a dead end, but you know it provides for your family. Hessed love is grimy, and it is dirty, and it is sweaty. But this is what, La, what Ruth does. She is a warrior in order to fight for Naomi. But it doesn't just stay there, there also is a man involved here. And we looked at femininity in regards to Ruth, that she is a warrior, as there. We also see Boaz as a warrior as well. It says this in verse 1 of the chapter Naomi had a relative of her husband's, and it says he is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name is Boaz. Now the phrase in the ESV is, says worthy man there in, in the Hebrew is actually refers to a warrior. In some translations it may be say he is a mighty man of valor. Again, the warrior picture comes up. That this is a man of integrity, a man of wealth, a man of strength, and he is a man of great courage and valor. At this time in the life of Israel, they are constantly at war. Boaz is most likely a captain, a sergeant, a man who leads other men into battle and Boaz is when he shows up when he arrives on the scene it is like man the knight in shining armor in so many ways he is a man who is seen as in of of high integrity who is wealthy who is loved who everyone bows down to but what we see here is that this man uses his prominent position to do war in order to communicate love I want to see Boaz's warrior love is seen in three ways as well Three ways. First is his longing to bless. First is his longing to bless. This is the heart of one who reaches out in love. Verse 4, we see our first introduction to Boaz is he shows up, right? He shows up, and the first thing we see, what does it say in verse 4? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you, and they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, is this a Hebrew way of saying Good morning. Why, is this bonjour to everybody? Is that what's going on? Like, like you know, that opening scene from, from Beauty and the Beast? Is this bell running through the, you know, through the town going, bonjour? And we're all singing bonjour. To, is that what's happening here? No. He's actually going through a, a, a liturgy. It's a benediction. What we do at the end of all of our services, he is benedicting, he is blessing those around him. And he is, he is seen in a stark contrast to the world around him. As we saw in Judges last week, that in Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And yet in Boaz, we have one who is not just wealthy, but he loves the Lord's. And he is keeping the law. And he is one who, who loves to bless people with the name of the Lord's. We see this idea of, of, of Boaz as a blesser, verse 12. When Ruth is amazed, in verse 11, she says, How, why have I found favor And Boaz answers her in this way. He says, the Lord will repay you for what you have done. And he sends a blessing over and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I want you to see this. Love begins with the longing that those you love will receive good. That you want good things for those around you that you want God to bless them in particular. This has become, right, saying God bless you to people has just become something that we would just kind of arbitrarily say. But in the Old Testament, that, that was, this, was, this was calling out to God, to saying, God, made the God of heaven and earth, the God who has made all things, may he pour out his blessing upon you, that you want good things for them. When I have opportunity to put my kids to bed at night, It's one of the great blessings of my life to lay my hands in. Fathers, it's not just pastors who get to do this. When you put your kids in bed at night, benedict them. Go memorize some benedictions and speak over them blessings. What we see in the patterns of the Old Testament is at the end of all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, they are there's these times where you see these chunks of passages where they bless each one of their children in a way that is specific to who they are. Bless your kids. It's words of affirmation, it's words of care, and it's crying out to God in front of your children. It's a means of praying to the God of, of all of eternity in front of your kids that he would do something mighty in them. Now, Boaz does more than simply point to God as a rewarder and a refuge, doesn't he? Because this is what your heart does. When you pray and when you ask for God to bless other people and your heart goes out to them, often you become the answer to that very prayer, and that's what Boaz is. Boaz asked that God would provide for Ruth, that he would pro- provide um, provision and protection for her, that God would provide, his wings of protection would come over her. And what we see is that actually, Boaz is the one who gives Ruth an example and a sample of God's protection and provision. He said, I want you to see this really briefly, verse 9. Boaz provides familial protection for Ruth. He calls her, what does he say? He calls her daughter. And he says, "I have char- daughter, I've charged my young men not to touch you. Now, Boaz is certainly offering her protection here, but there's something more than that going on. Really quickly, to publicly refer to her as daughter was to connect himself, right? That's a familial term, to connect himself to her and to tell the young men not to touch her and then to offer her drink from his vessel. In all these ways, what Boaz is communicating to everybody else around her is she is in my family. She is connected to me. Let me run through this quickly. To call her daughter was a term of endearment and dignity, Remember who Ruth is. She is a woman. She is a widow. She is disconnected from any man. He was saying, though, publicly, he's saying, this woman, Ruth, has value and worth in my eyes. The connection goes deeper, though, when he tells the young men not to touch her. What he's doing here is he's saying, he asks the foreman, whose woman is this? In other words, what he's saying is, who is her daddy? What are her family connections? Who is her protector? Libby Grove says this in her, her commentary on the book of Ruth. She says this, The presence of a male represented more than merely protection. If a male had been with Ruth as she went into the, into the, the field, it declared her status. And that said she was properly fitted into a family structure and was therefore a respectable woman. And therefore she would be treated as such. If she was unaccompanied, though, it signaled that she was not a respectable woman. It was fine to treat her in any way you choose. You could abuse her in any way you saw fit. But the presence of a male communicated that her family, that she belonged to a family, that cared enough about her to send her out with a chaperone. And what they would say is, if a man or that chaperone was with her, it says is this, that if you messed with her, her family was coming after you. You don't touch her or you got to deal with me. And that's exactly what Boaz says. Boaz says, young men, touch her, and you got to deal with me. I will protect her. I will come around her. I will be the wings of God's refuge. For a woman that has no physical refuge in this world, I will become that for her. And then finally, Boaz offers her drink from his water jars. This offers not only care for, for Ruth's physical thirst, and actually saves her time that she's not having to go to the well herself to get water so she can continue to glean and bring in more food. But more than that, it is symbolic. right? Because drinking from the same vessel back then was a cross-cultural tension. Remember, the, the woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman, she is shocked when Jesus offers to drink from the same pail as her. And she's going, how and why in the world would you drink with a woman, and not only that, but a Samaritan woman, right? It was to say that, like, to, to, do, to, to drink from the same vessel to say that there's connection between us. And there's always been these times in the history where people have refused to drink from the same vessel. You think of the American South in the 1950s where there were separate drinking fountains for whites and blacks. Why was that? Because we wanted separateness, those of us who are whites, which I think is just about all of us except for Mel. Sorry, Mel, but to point you out. But there, there is like this, there is this tension that's saying, I want nothing to do with you. And therefore, I'm not going to drink from the same place as you. I'm not going to eat at the same shop as you. But Boaz is saying, no, no, we will drink from the same ladle. We are connected. We are in community together. And why don't you see this also in verse 14? He invites Ruth to come sit with him at lunchtime. This is almost like high school, what, what Boaz does here. This is the most popular Wealthy, strong kid in school inviting the weakest, poorest kid. You know, Ruth is the kid that everyone else in the school can measure themselves by and feel good. She is the lowest of the low on the social rung. That she but yet here Boaz invites Ruth to the table to come and eat with him. What I want you to see in all of these statements in action that Boaz is saying this she's with me. She's connected to me. Because love brings people into community. Love binds itself. It unites itself. It connects itself. And that's what Boaz does. He uses his status, his power to bring her in. He abundantly provides for her. And in all this, what I want you to see as well as this, is that manhood, as Boaz displays it here, is not in his wealth and is not in his strength, is not in the fact that he led men into battle, but is the fact that he uses his social Physical and financial power in order to love somebody else. This is a stark difference between Ruth. There's a stark difference between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is powerful. The women are powerless. Boaz has wealth and resources. They battle poverty and hunger. Boaz is a social elite. They are socially low. Ruth loved even in and out of her impoverishment, and there we see in her the strength of her femininity. Boaz loves in and out of the power and position and privilege, and there we see right masculinity. that he uses his power not to abuse, but sees his position and his privilege that God and the roles that God has given him in order to care for those around him. And so therefore, what I want to call you men to is this: Use your power for the good of others, and you absolutely have power." It's a great book, book that I would totally recommend you to get. It's by Andy Crouch. It's a book called Playing Gods, where he talks about the redemptive, how we need to view power and the role of places that we have, whether it be social power or financial power, economic power, and we need to utilize it, not simply by not abusing other people with our power, but use it for God's kingdom purposes. And he says this in the book at one point. He says this, that power is nothing, and actually it's worse than nothing without love. Right? What's the greatest and most stark example of using power without love? It would be sexual assaults. Over and over again in the Scriptures, what we see is that God, though, gives power for the purpose of blessing. Therefore, young men, use your strength and your vitality to pursue and to woo, not to force your way upon somebody else. Use your energies in your early years, like Mel is, to go overseas, to use the strength of your youth for God's kingdom purposes. I have the power of, of of youth, Mel says. Therefore, I will go and die. Fathers, don't use your strength and your power and your size. You'll become a much better disciplinarian and you'll raise your kids much better if you stop using your power to abuse your kids and to get your way. This is one of the most stark things that I had to realize about myself is that I was trying to intimidate my two-year-old daughters. And I had to wonder to myself, what in the world is wrong with you that you would do this? That you would walk heavy and you would become large when you move towards them when when they're disobedient? It's something I have to work with my sons at from a very early, early age. Isn't that right, Cade? And what do we talk about? That when we hit our sisters, that when we would kick, we have this conversation Cade, why has God made you the older brother? Cade, why has God made you strong? Because God gave you those blessings in order to be a blessing to your little brother, to protect him, to care for him, to invite him in, not to push him away. This is why God has given us power. Andy Crouch says this, the power, it is the source for refreshment and laughter and joy in life. To remove power, you cut off life. The possibility of creating something new and better in this rich and recalcitrant world. Life is power and power is life. And flourishing power leads to a flourishing life. Boaz gives life to Ruth and Naomi. I have another point here this morning, but I have to be very, very, very fast. Third point is this. Naomi experiences a resurrection because of a redeemer. Now at the end of act two of this play, Ruth goes home and she shows her spoils of her day and Naomi is amazed. She's wondering at the enormity of what Ruth has brought in. It says that she brought in a whole ephah. This is two weeks of food. And it was probably, possibly for the first time in a decade, Naomi and Ruth don't have to wonder if they're going to have food tomorrow. There's going to be food on the table. and But yet, that doesn't appear to be what Naomi is most excited about. Naomi gets really animated, really excited, and she asks some rapid-fire questions when she sees all this food that, that Ruth has brought home, and she says, somebody had to have found favor on you. You don't make this from just gleaning in the impoverished part of the fields. And she knows that some man is taking care of her, and so Ruth plays it out, and she says, yes, I went and, and I found favor from a particular man, and his name is, the tension builds, Boaz. And it's here that Naomi's life takes a clear and profound upturn. You can hear the resurrection in her voice. Boaz, I know that name. He is a redeemer for our family. That's the word goel, and we'll look at that in great detail in the next couple of weeks. But as great as her provision is for two weeks of grain, what she is more excited about here is that the possibility that there is one out there who might redeem their family and redeem their family name. In verse, two, in verse 20, Ruth, or Naomi says this, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead, or the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our Redeemers. In other words, what she is saying is this. I've been at the bottom of the J-curve of my life, and yet for the first time in a long time, I hear that there's hope because there's the presence of a Redeemer who is still out there. And here's where we want to get to the Gospel this morning. We get to it a little bit early in the book of Ruth. God's, God's has said love comes to us by the gift of his son. That your story in life right now, if you may be at the bottom of the J-curve, but there is always hope of resurrection because there is a redeemer who came. History is not moving in a circle. It is moving to a climax. And the low point of that was the crucifixion of Jesus immediately followed by the upturn of the J-curve story. That there was a God, the same God whose in image, both male and female in body, there was a God who entered this world as a foreigner, who in his love for us took on risks, who became imminently helpful to heal and provide like Ruth did, who took on weakness to come and to rescue and to save, to be an Azair, a help to the world that was so lost it could not help itself. But in this God, we also see dis- we see power displayed. God uses His power, His righteousness, and the mighty force of His arms to do what—to defeat death, to give life to those living and to those dead, as Naomi would put it. Andy Crouch says this: "Love that is at the love is the heartbeat of the Christian story." The Father's love for the Son and through the Son for the world is not simply a sentimental feeling or a distant, ethereal, theological truth, but has been signed and sealed by the most audacious act of true power in the history of the world, which is the resurrection of the Son from the dead. The reason why all your stories are gospel stories, and they don't go in a circle, but they come down into death, and they shoot up into life all all of eternity, is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because there is a Redeemer who entered into death with you so that he might rise you up and raise you up into life with him. The gospel story is not a circle but a J-curve. And the story of Naomi, what we're beginning to see here is the story is beginning to rise upwards. To rise upwards. The story of your life, if you have Jesus, is not a circle. It's not even a linear line. It is a J-curve that moves towards what? Heaven. Heaven. All because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you write really good stories. That, Lord, the stories that the world writes, with all, Lord, they can paint it in every way they can. They can put cute warthogs and lemurs on it. They can sing songs about it. But in the end, Lord, it is dreary and it is circular and it ends in death. Oh but Lord, we thank you that you're a God, you're a God who came to destroy the circle, that you entered into death, and you bent the story back upwards into heaven, into eternity with you. And so, gracious God, I pray for those this morning who are weary and worn like Naomi, that perhaps in this moment, in a single day, in a single 45-minute sermon, as they see the blessing of God, that maybe their story, they begin to take the hope that Naomi took, that perhaps there's a Redeemer out there for me. And we know this, Lord, we can rise up even further than Naomi did because we know we do have that Redeemer. He has come and he is ours. May we run to him. May we run to him in life and in death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.